was talking to a very good friend who is not given to faith. And he is a good friend. I would trust him with anything. He's a scientist, and he lives his life. I am going to have problems with this, I can tell. He lives his life referring to data. I wouldn't call him an atheist. He's definitely not a believer. Calling him an agnostic isn't quite fair either. We like those kinds of labels. He knows there's something behind the universe, but what is it? Or I say to him, maybe you should ask, who is it? We together find a common friend, though, in Thomas. Thomas, I was hoping the picture would be on the screen of the incredulity of St. Thomas by Carviaggio. It was painted in 1600. It's a picture that screams of doubt turning to faith. It's, it's Thomas's doubt is turning to faith. Thomas the doubter willingly, willingly admitted disbelief. I've always found his courage and his honesty with friends encouraging. We should allow lots of space for people like Thomas in our midst, doubters. And the culture we live in, we're going to have to allow more and more for that. I mean, a recent poll just came out, I just read it in David French's article this morning, that the new research shows that since the year 2000, we have gone from 72% of Americans worshiping or connected to a synagogue, mosque, or church into, I think it's 47% now. There's doubt. I, I know there's doubters here this morning. And often in churches, we just hide our doubt. Thomas welcomes you. And I want you to know Jesus welcomes you. And I definitely welcome you. Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I'm not going to believe. Thomas doubted a whole week and he continued to hang out with his friends. Right? He didn't go anywhere. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the center of the group and it's not a ghost Jesus, it's a flesh and blood Jesus. A gentle Jesus. And he says, Thomas, put your finger right here. Touch me. Stop doubting and believe. And believe he did. How do we know that Thomas believed? Thomas was stabbed to death in India for preaching Jesus as the Jewish God of creation invading the earth. Taking on human suffering, dying and literally rising from the dead. Thomas, said in, uh, Thomas asked Jesus in John 14, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how do we know the way? And then Jesus gives that classic answer. Thomas, I am the way and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Thomas goes to India, and he preaches. India had 330 million deities. Get that around here, get that in your head. In that context, Thomas the Doubter declared Jesus is the risen Christ and the only way. And he was speared to death. He wanted to put his finger in the side of Christ, and he was speared in his doubting Thomas side for the risen Christ, who's the way, the truth, and the life. My friend asked Mark, what do you think 
happened on Easter morning? And I want you to know that's a great question. A conversation ensued with my very good friend, Doctor, about the strange story of resurrection. And I, I want you to know, I think it's a strange story. The strangeness of the resurrection story points to the authenticity of it for me. You're gonna have to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make your mind spin a little bit this morning, probably. The strangeness helps me to stop doubting and to believe. The strangeness of the resurrection stories has moved me to a deeper faith. Uh, when I say stories, I mean plural. The unique individual stories of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We miss their strangeness. You know why? Because we're just so familiar with them. We hear them all the time. We need to let them speak. We read our ideas and our need for hope of life after death into them. We all do. But weird things are present and others are absent in the stories. And the strangeness helps me trust them as reliable witnesses to what actually happened in that Palestinian graveyard. There's something interesting about us human beings. We, what we see is shaped by what we expect to find. What we see is shaped by what we expect to find. We have biases. All of us do. Alistair McGrath wrote that in his book, The Resurrection. The people arriving at the tomb on Easter morning, get this, were not expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. Resurrection didn't fit into the way they saw the world. It did not fit within their Jewish faith. Understand that. They were expecting to find a decomposing corpse. That's why two of the stories tell us that they took spices. They were going to sweeten the smell of death, and I've been around a lot of death. Death needs to be sweetened, because it can make you nauseous. Every gospel tells us they were going to the tomb, and they knew where the tomb was, because Luke tells us the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. It's like they pitched the tent out Side the tomb and we're watching. Just on Thursday, I interned my very good friend who died April 1st, 2020, Larry Verhage, the medical director at Moses Lake Community Health. Tragic accident. And two weeks, three weeks later, his grandson died. So we interned them together. I know exactly why. I, I paid attention to where we buried him in the Moses Lake Cemetery because I'm going back. I'm going to go stand at the tomb. I'm going to remember him. I'm going to honor his life and allow him to still keep speaking into me because he influenced me for the resurrection of Jesus. And then the, the women returned and prepared spices and anointments. And on the Sabbath they rested, but on the first day of the week they went to the tomb because they knew where it was. And they knew the tomb's location. And in all accounts they found the tomb empty and they were completely surprised. They were expecting to find a dead body, and instead they encountered an empty tomb. And they didn't know what to make of it. Mary Magdalene, she's wonderful, finds the tombstone rolled away, and she begins to cry in John's Gospel. Not because she thinks he's alive. She's thinking someone stole the body. Resurrection is the farthest thing from her mind. She looks into the tomb with tears in her eyes, and she sees two angels. Now, come on, if she's seeing two angels, 
Doesn't that clue her into something must be going on here? But she's still not cluing in. They say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And her answer is, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And Mary's thought is consistent. Jesus is their tote. Jesus is their tote. That's German for, he is very dead. That's what she was thinking. She turns, she sees Jesus, but she mistakes him for a gardener. Really? Come on. That's odd. She asks Jesus where Jesus has taken Jesus because she can't tell that the supposed gardener is Jesus. Why can't she recognize him? Did she not think something is going on here? It's not every day you meet two angels in a graveyard chatting with you. And then there's something strange lacking in all the gospel stories that gives me hope. You know what it is? It's the lack of hope. That sounds really odd. They lack hope. The stories lack hope, and that is the odd way it gives me hope. There's absolutely no mention of hope in the stories. There's nothing remotely close to Peter's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The lack of hope witnesses to the truthfulness of the historical retelling of actual events. I mean, 10 years of hospice work means that I've preached countless funerals. I did three in one day one time. It was common to do five in a week. I was with the dead and I was with the dying. All ages. Think of how old you are. I was at your bedside. But there is hope to preach at funerals because of the gospel. And I love to preach the 23rd Psalm. We know it. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. It's a beautiful, poetic prayer. All over the New Testament, we are encouraged that because of the resurrection of Jesus, death has lost its sting. And that's true. Paul writes that because Christ has been raised from the dead, death's been swallowed up in victory. We are promised heaven, eternal life, and Christ himself, when we die, embodies at the second coming. All over the Bible, we are promised a 23rd Psalm ending. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The gospel resurrection passages have not one hint of that message. Why? No eternal life mentioned, no resurrection union hope offered. I'm not given encouragement that when I was eight, my dad died. There's no encouragement in those passages, the stories that I'll see my father again. I mean, have you ever seen a shepherd at work? I mean, we pray that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and Jesus picks up that metaphor in John chapter 10. And I don't know if Billy Porter's here. Billy, this is for you if you're here. Are you here? No. Okay. Billy's a good friend of mine. And Jesus picks up that metaphor, and he says, 
in John chapter 10, at one point he says, I am the gate for the sheep. There's, there's all this metaphors of the shepherd going on in John 10. Whoever enters through me, Jesus says, will be saved, and they will come in and out and find safe pasture. And Jesus is just, as he says that, he's moved the picture of the shepherd and the sheep from inside the village to outside the village. There's two sections here. It's in the village, and then he's moving it to outside the village. Shepherds must lead their flocks farther up and farther in, to use a C.S. Lewis metaphor from the Chronicles of Narnia, as the three to four months of green pasture that's closer to the village gives way to the hot, dry climate. I mean, just my wife and I love to hike Beasley Hill to the third tower. We like to hike. And we like being in this area, especially right now, because if you notice, it's green. You should not see the green on Beasley Hill. But soon, it'll be desert brown. We all know that. Well, the, the, the hills were green, and they could, they could move out just outside the town, but then they had to go farther up and farther in to get food for their sheep. And thieves roamed in those hills. It was dangerous for the flock. Wild animals are helping themselves to lamb chops. So how does the shepherd protect his flock? Well, in those hills, shepherds for centuries have taken uncut field stones, and they build these makeshift walls about that high, as much as they can, all around. And then if they, if they can find some thorns and stuff, they make like barbed wire across the top. But they don't have a gate or something to block the front. There's just an opening there. I mean, the, the entrance is the place of vulnerability. The shepherd would lead his flock in at evening to the entrance, and his leading to a place of protection. In the Psalm 23, it's that, I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, the rod and the staff, a, a, a shorter staff of two and a half feet, had all these metal pieces embedded into it that he beat off wild animals with. And then at the evening, he would hold it out, and he would count, just like in Leviticus, as the sheep are coming in. And they're, they're counting. And every tenth sheep or cattle that came in went for the tithe. It's interesting. You could have the most mangled, skinny sheep, and that would be number nine. And you could have the one that's going to make you all the money, number ten. And if it fell at the number ten of the rod, that's God's. You can't rearrange your sheep so the tenth one is the skinny one. Well, the shepherd would count. And if he had 100 sheep in the wilderness and 99 passed into the rod, he'd go and search for the one. That's the story of Luke 15. The shepherd. Well, when all the sheep are safely in the desert pen, the shepherd must protect the entrance. So he'd light a fire. If he had a sheepdog, they would be there. But most importantly, the shepherd will lay across the entrance to protect the sheep. The shepherd becomes the gate. That's Jesus. The shepherd is the door. The shepherd in that act says, if you want to get to my sheep, you have to go through me. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come and go out and find safe pasture. I am the gate, Jesus said. He did not say, I am a gate. There's that exclusiveness. And those thieves, thieves in this chapter, John, they came to steal, to kill and to destroy. 
But Jesus promises by this picture of being the gate that he will protect his sheep. That's who he is. But that picture of a shepherd from Psalm 23, that hope, it's in our Bibles, but I want you to know that's the message of Paul and Peter and John and James, but we don't find any of that in strange resurrection stories. Why? Matthew and Mark, Luke and John were not interpreting the Easter events. They weren't writing a theology of resurrection for us. They were not asking, they were not seeking to say, this is what the resurrection means for us. And how it applies to our lives. The gospel writers were not trying to persuade people to believe. These are not apologetic stories, though we've made them that, and we can use them that way. A defense and evidence for the Christian faith. They are history, and that is why there's all the strangeness in the stories. They're reporting what happened. Mark shows the women so puzzled and afraid and astonished that initially they keep their empty tomb experience to themselves. Luke records that the disciples thought the women and their words were idle tale, and they did not believe them. One translation says they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Another way of translating that is they just look at them and says humbug. Really? And when Jesus starts to hike the Emmaus Trail with two disciples on the first Sunday after Easter, or the first Easter Sunday, the disciples don't recognize Jesus. How can that be? And then Jesus eats at a table with them. Jesus invites the disciples in Luke's, in, in, in Luke's story he said he invites them to share the bread, and he goes and gives them the bread, and you know what it says there? Their eyes were open. And then Jesus left. As soon as their eyes were open. Yeah, this is great. This isn't in my notes, but I just got to say it. It's so resurrection filled. In, in Genesis chapter 3, that fall, you have the fall, and, and, and Adam and Eve, they share that apple. That's the first story of human beings sharing a meal. And when they eat that apple, it says it's pretty nice apple. But when they eat the apple, when they eat the apple, it says their eyes are open. And then we know it all went south from that. The first meal after the resurrection is on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus sits down with these disciples, and he takes and he breaks the bread, and he gives it to them, and you know what it says? Their eyes are open. He reversed all the curse. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus invites the disciples in Luke and John to touch him and examine his wounds. Luke's Jesus is hungry, and the disciples themselves give Jesus a piece of broiled fish. Now, that's a weird thing, broiled fish. Not just fish, broiled fish. What kind of fish it is? That's a detail. Fabricated legend stories don't give that kind of detail. And they watch Jesus eat it. John's Jesus shows up in a room without entering it. The doors are locked, and then he just kind of materializes. Star Trek started there. 
John's Jesus eats fish too, but John gives us a strange comment. None of the disciples dared ask Jesus, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Well, they knew this was Jesus, but he was a different Jesus. I mean, the language of the Greek means to press Jesus with questions. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to scrutinize him and examine him and inquire of him. They knew it was him, but they wanted to ask to make sure. Matthew's Jesus is known, but different, and this causes serious doubt. Judas has already committed suicide. The 11 remaining disciples are in Galilee on a mountain with Jesus. And what does John, Matthew tell us? He says, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Who doubted? Was it Matthew? Was Peter back on the fence again? Did Thomas have more questions raised in his head? The strangeness of the resurrected body of Jesus is not explained or interpreted or pondered at all. It is just physically present with all of its chaotic confusion, and I love the way the renowned resurrection scholar N.T. Wright puts it in his, his massive 800-page book on the resurrection of Jesus. He just says this, the risen Jesus both was and was not the same as he had been before. There was something different about him, something which his closest friends and followers could not put their finger on at the time. Something which seemed to enable him to do things, different things. Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's Jesus does not allay their doubts and fears. And they allow the tension to just remain in the air. This was Jesus, all right, but there was a mystery about him which even those who knew him best were now unable to penetrate. And then N.T. Wright creates a word. He calls it transphysical. And then he says not to solve the mystery, but at least to give a name to it. Transphysical. I like that. The strangeness of all these details points to the stories being written to communicate what happened and what was experienced. And they're not afraid to say, hey, these people doubted, these people didn't get it, these people didn't even think to look about the, the big deal about talking to angels. They don't try to explain away the confusion. They allow the tension to remain in the air. They speak of doubt and fear and give no hope. No, the Lord is my shepherd, hope. That's not in the gospel narrative. It is commonly held that the Gospels were written later than the letters of Paul. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. It was read for us this morning. It's one of the most ancient documents that we have. Earliest. Paul penned it. It was a confession in the early church. We confess that on the screen. This is what we believe at our church. Paul takes 58 verses in chapter 15 to pound out the meaning and application of the resurrection. In the Gospels, if the Gospels were written after this, which we all believe, where in the Gospels is this teaching, application, and explanation that Paul is giving? 
So the Gospels are written over here. Paul's was first. Why don't the Gospels that are written with all of this Paul stuff going on, why don't they have all the meaning when they're writing about what happened? Why all the confusion and chaos and doubt and strangeness with no explanation? And the reason? These are not fabricated stories, friends. These Gospels, though written after Paul, they pull from the earliest traditions of the resurrection. And those are well before Paul. They are telling us what happened Easter morning and holding nothing back. They aren't concerned if we say, oh, come on, get real. You've got to be kidding me. The strangeness of the story fills me with the hope of the resurrection. This is what happened. Christ has died, but Christ is risen. And therefore, we know Christ is coming again. And then we get to the women. Leave it to the women to make things really strange. <laughs> Sorry, had to say it. I mean, if these stories were fabricated, nobody on God's green earth, in their right mind, in the first century, would write women into them as primary witnesses to the resurrection. I have to admit, I'm a Blue Bloods addict. I love the TV show Blue Bloods. You know, Tom Selleck, I can't get, it's hard to get Tom Selleck's Magnum P.I. short shorts out of my head at times, but I've managed, and I just dated myself in saying that. But this is an episode that triggered my resurrection thoughts. And it started with a preteen boy walking in Central Park in New York City with his dad. And someone comes running at them holding a gun, and the dad pushes the boy aside to the ground, and then he is shot multiple times and killed right in front of his son. They eventually arrest the man, and then he's accused of murder. The boy is taken before a lineup of men to see if he can handpick the man who had shot his dad. He scans the men in the lineup and he picks them out. The prosecutor for New York City was present, as was the defending attorney. And the defending attorney made the argument that the boy was too young, too traumatized, and manipulated, and coached by Danny Reagan, and the boy lacks credibility as a witness. The defending attorney's argument in his line with the first century view of women. That's exactly the way women were viewed in the first century. Women lacked credibility as witnesses in Jewish and Roman culture. And certainly their word lacked the integrity and credibility of men. In the Jewish Talmud, we find sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to a woman. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer also, they are not valid to offer. The historian Josephus wrote, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Did you notice that when Kiefer read that 1 Corinthians passage, where Paul gives this incredible list of witnesses, he doesn't one time mention women. Not once. Every gospel strangely lists up front as primary witnesses the first preachers going back to the disciples, the women. And these are written after Paul. 
Why would they do that? Why would they put the women at the tomb? And the women, the first ones here, not only that, but the crazy thing is, is the craziest one is the primary witness. Mary Magdalene. She was demonized. She didn't just have one demon. She had seven demons, Luke 8 tells us. Seven. I mean, John has seven. Seven churches in the book of Revelation. Seven I am saying. Seven signs, miracles throughout his gospel. And then he gives this word seven about her demons. I mean, she is loaded. She's nuts. She is the only person named in every one of the gospel accounts. In a Jewish culture where women just need to be quiet. What Paul says is accurate and true, but he leaves out the women. I mean, everyone written there about the men the crowds, which would have had women in it, but he didn't list them by name. The gospel writers let that embarrassment and strangeness of the women fill the air with tension. They let us know the men disciples thought their testimony was humbug. They go back and tell them, and the, the disciples say, oh, it's nonsense. If they were making up the gospel stories, there would not be a daughter of Eve, a woman, in them. There just wouldn't be. But there are women because guess what? Women were the first witnesses. And guess what? Guess what is one of Matthew's favorite expressions? Oh, he uses it 62 times in the gospel. It gets translated, behold, suddenly. One scholar loves to translate it, but guess what? Look. And I like that. So guess what? There was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. Guess what? I, I know that you're seeking Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. And, and, he, and he said, speaking to the women, come, see the place where they lay him, and then go quickly as the first witnesses, mind you, and tell the disciples, those ones that are scared and were running and spending all their time on Good Friday running away from Jesus, Tell them that he's risen from the dead. And guess what? He's going before you to Galilee, and there you'll see him. And guess what? You'll never guess. There was a double one there. Jesus met them, the women, and he said, greetings. And guess what? Guess what Jesus' last words were to us in Matthew 28? Behold, guess what? He said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And behold, guess what? They saw Jesus alive. And guess what? Some doubted. And some believed. And guess what? The message was entrusted first to women. And it caused resurrection laughter because it went against everything that was culturally proper. And guess what? Jesus' body was trans-physical. And they didn't know what to do with it. And guess what? The Gospels let the tension just dance in the air because this is the true story of what happened and our hope is based on it. And Paul and Peter and John, they look back and they interpret that event for us. So guess what? The strangeness of this whole story points to its historical truth. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, is risen today. Why? Because he literally rose from the dead in 33 AD, and the women were the first responders. Encourage each other with these words. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.